Hello, and welcome to The Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, a heart failure transplant cardiologist from California, based out of the University of Utah, your host for the podcast this season. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. This is a a very special discussion. We're going to learn the backstory and discuss hot off the press the recently released new universal definition and classification of heart failure. This new classification was developed jointly by the HFSA, Heart Failure Association of the European Society of Cardiology, and the Japanese Heart Failure Society. I'm pleased to be joined by the two co-chairs behind this tremendous effort, which was jointly published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure, the official journal of HFSA, and the European Journal of Heart Failure, the official journal of HFA ESC. Before we dive into the conversation, let me take a moment to introduce our two guests. First, we have Dr. Beacom Boskert, the immediate past president of the HFSA, the Marion Gordon Kane Chair, Professor of Medicine, Associate Provost of Faculty Affairs, Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Development, and Director of the Winters Center for Heart Failure Research in Houston, Texas. Dr. Boskert is also the Chair of the Writing Committee for the Universal Definition of Heart Failure. And we have Professor Andrew Coates, who's the current president of the Heart Failure Association of the ESC, former deputy vice chancellor and dean of medicine of the University of Sydney, head of cardiology of Imperial College, London, and associate medical director and director of cardiology of the Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals in London. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Kevin. So as I mentioned, even before we started recording, I, I read through the entire document a few nights ago. I was very impressed by how it was a combination of comprehensive, clinically relevant, and very digestible and very simple. And I want to learn a little bit of the backstory. So, Beacom, if we start with what, what, were, what were the thoughts and really the impetus that led to the efforts to say we need a new document and a new universal definition of heart failure? Thank you, Kevin. Um, first, I'm going to start with why we did this. There are four important points I'm going to touch on. First, there was a need for a standard uh, definition in heart failure. The academic definitions we've had had in the textbooks historically, with the emphasis on inability of the heart to meet the metabolic demands, though fulfilled the description probably for a subgroup of advanced heart failure patients, were not easily applicable to the remainder of the population that we on a day-to-day basis deal with. Uh, The second reason was the differences we had in our terminologies or definitions and even classification across different societies, which created challenges for the clinicians across the globe. The third very important point, we recognized the importance of guideline-directed medical therapies, but in the last two decades have not seen improvement in adherence to GDMT in the real-world population. Part of this required a systematic change as to how we look at implementation, which needed the first step, which is standardization of definitions. So we recognize the necessity to reboot the whole system and thus the terminologies matter, definitions matter, coding, documentation matter. So we wanted to create this platform by which things could be standardized. The final reason as to why was to be able to translate these terminologies to non 
specialists, clinicians, and or patients, because we academicians understood our stages and others, but sometimes these terminologies were not as easily understandable as cancer was. So we had a trilateral cooperative agreement between HFSA, HFA, and JHFS, which entailed having to come up with a consensus document on a yearly basis. And we said, this would be a perfect platform by which to develop a universal consensus statement. And we had a consensus meeting in August with participation from uh, a large group of international writing committee members and subsequently held numerous web communication, email communication, and had uh, held a variety of discussions to reach this consensus. So with participation from 38 writing committee members and from 14 different countries, uh, we developed this consensus statement along with the HFSA, HFA of ESC and the Japanese Heart Failure Society. We have endorsements from Canadian Heart Failure Society, Heart Failure Association of India, Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand, and the Chinese Heart Failure Association. I'll welcome comments from Andrew as to how we did it. I would give a very simple answer to that, Beacom. Put Beacom in charge of making it happen because the speed and the efficiency was awesome. It was a very professional effort. And I really congratulate you for the professionalism, collegiality, and just pleasant determination to actually get this over the line. It, if you look at the dates, it was an amazing speed in less than six months from the consensus meeting and literally only two or three months before that, thinking about the idea, we've got what I think is a very impressive document. In addition, and I totally support all the reasons you put for the importance of this, but also at a very simple level, if you can't accurately and comprehensively, but also simplistically define a disease, people don't actually know where it's there. And other diseases like renal failure has become CKD, lung disease, have simplified their definition in a way that people say, I get that. And I think we're on a journey and this is a very important marker. It's probably not, as you've, you've said, the last ever statement on the definition of heart failure, but I think it is a major step forward. And having so many of these powerful associations around the world being partners to this is really a credit to your leadership, Beacon, honestly. Thank you, Andrew. We had a good team. I don't think uh, it's attributable to a single person, but we had, a, we had the will of all the partners. I think all the team members, especially our society representatives and the leaders, understood the necessity for this. And uh, I think this was years in coming and a variety of other uh, contributors that uh, participated as uh, writing committee members yearned for development of this consensus. When there is a will, there's always a way. And I think we all understood the necessity of how important this was for building blocks. We needed that standardization. And I think we tried to come up with as, as much of a broad um, standardization that's applicable across different countries and uh, societies. Yeah, the, the time was right. And I would give credit also to all the authors who really put their effort in. No one lagged, no one was being difficult. It was, it was a very collaborative effort. Like I said, just reading through it, I could tell there were a lot of important opinions that were able to be put down into one document and really come up with something that's easy to work with and easy to understand 
frankly, if you're in heart failure or even if you're not in the heart failure space, which I, I, I get the impression that was an important takeaway from the document. I was going to add one more thing, Kevin. We yeah. actually asked for uh, feedback from a large group of reviewers. So this document has gone through different reiterations of review, peer review. Uh, we started with uh, the selected reviewers by the societies and then went with our publication statements committee review as well as the journal reviews. Thus, the glance of a variety of different experts provided us a lot of feedback by which further revisement and refinement was um, uh, implemented. And thus, we think that we were able to incorporate not only the writing groups, but a large uh, group of reviewers' concepts. And those are also listed in our document. And, and uh, we really acknowledge not only our writing group members, but our reviewers as well. Thank you. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I, clearly a large team effort. You know, one of the takeaways I took from the document is, is this strong emphasis that most of us in this space know, which is heart failure remains a syndrome. There's not one test. There's not one piece of tissue. There's not one way to say you have heart failure. It's a syndrome and really this a spectrum of disease. And the standout figure to me, at least, is really this reconceptualization of stage A through stage D and what, what's really changed and how that's been refined. Ikam, do you want to maybe walk us through a little bit your the team's viewpoint in terms of how we should look at stage A, stage B, stage C, and and then end-stage heart failure? So the first point is the revision of the terminologies we'd like to use. A, B, C, D was clear to all the academicians, perhaps to a certain extent, probably clear to most of the clinicians, but translating that to the patient, as easy it was for cancer was not happening for us. We had to explain why, what we meant by stage B to a patient to tell them that they're pre-heart failure. So first, step was using terminologies easily understandable by clinicians who may not be a heart failure specialist. And thus, the revision is putting the at-risk for stage A, pre-HF or pre-heart failure for stage B, heart failure for stage C, and advanced heart failure in lieu of stage D. With these terminology changes, which we'll hope that will be uh, embraced by clinicians, we also thought that we could translate the concepts better to the patients. The second important point is the pre-heart failure definition or the stage B definition. Traditionally, that required structural changes in the setting of a patient without symptoms, structural changes either as chamber abnormality, EF abnormality, or left ventricular hypertrophy. But as we all knew, there was advance in ability to detect subclinical changes by biomarkers, ultra-structural uh, changes. And we wanted to embrace the ability to detect that pre-heart failure state with biomarkers. So in pre-heart failure, i.e., stage B, now elevation of biomarkers is one of the criteria to call it stage B. Why is that important? We now have, in addition to prevention strategies, new treatment strategies that can be uh, employed in pre-heart failure to prevent future heart failure development. And this is critical. And I, we thought that we would standardize the terminologies to make it clear to the clinicians uh, underline the emphasis for the necessity to not miss this, 
treat it and also translate it to the patient. Yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed there's really a, a, a nod to biomarkers in a positive way here between what you said for at-risk heart failure using either congestion or elevated uh, natriuretic peptides. I also noticed there's inclusion now of cardiac troponin in the setting of potential cardiotoxicity, which I think is clearly a new addition when we talk about defining heart failure. What were, uh, what were some of the discussions behind really putting this greater emphasis on at least recognizing biomarkers in the, in the, uh, in the stage B uh, or pre-heart failure? There was quite a lot of discussion because if we compare heart failure with other chronic diseases, some are defined by a single biomarker. CKD now has a dominance of uh, GFR. We have diabetes with HbA1c as well as blood glucose. Even lung disease, we have measures of lung function. For heart failure, the natriuretic peptides as a group have come out as the the leader of the pack in terms of biomarkers being useful for a number of clinical conditions, status. Um, they've also got the highest level of recommendation in some of our guidelines for use for rule out of heart failure in the acute dyspneic setting, but they haven't yet become the feature of heart disease, heart failure, diagnosis or staging. We also incorporate ejection fraction, but because of the syndrome, many other clinical features. So it hadn't quite reached the stage where we said natriuretic peptides define heart failure. However, we did recognize that it really is central. And if there were to be a biomarker, it's the lead candidate to be the biomarker that basically is the core and center of heart failure. So I think we're at a stage in a journey and it may take years. We, we may not happen in our working lifetimes, but I personally think it will, where we recognize the very significant importance of natriuretic peptides, not excluding the possibility something better might come along in the future, and it's very useful also for the non-specialist. For us to say, you need complex clinical assessment, you need imaging techniques, you need to put it all together, makes life very difficult for very experienced specialist physicians who aren't heart failure dedicated. So we want something they can say, okay, simple recipe. If it looks like heart failure, it's cardiac abnormality, classical signs, symptoms, there's congestion, or I've got a very elevated natriuretic peptide level, they can, they can say, okay, I'm confident this is heart failure. But the academicians also said, well, there are other th conditions that can change natriuretic peptide levels. It's not pure and 100% defined and related to heart failure. Other factors participate. So we're not quite there in the single biomarker supremacy but we've certainly put a marker down that natriuretic peptides is an important part of the universal definition of heart failure. That's a great point. And, you know, you brought it up, so I'm going to bring it up too, which is ejection fraction, right? The ejection fraction is, I feel like there's a love-hate relationship for ejection fraction when it comes to heart failure. And the, the categorization that's, that's uh, recommended now includes reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction, mildly reduced ejection fraction, and now this idea of improved ejection fraction. And I noticed, particularly in the document, the writing committee does a tremendous job acknowledging all of the nuances with ejection fraction, the limitations of ejection fraction. However, they also give appropriate due when it comes to therapies that we can recommend for ejection fraction. So 
I'm curious, Beacom, in terms of the discussions about where ejection fraction, how it plays a role, and what it means in terms of this document, what, what were the discussions like? Thank you. Very important point. Number one, ejection fraction is for the clinician to target therapies to. And uh, traditionally, we all understood the limitations in measuring ejection fraction and that it's not the sole and probably more uh, uh, or even reliable uh, determination of contractility. We all recognize that. But knowing the, both the evidence that we have with clinical trials that have targeted certain phenotypes of patients, um, such as the HEFREF patients, where the evidence of GDMT predominantly lies in, there is a necessity for that reason to be able to classify, classify the targeted therapies too. With that, there was also a responsibility to standardize it because uh, we, do, we did recognize the HEFREF definition through the years have changed. Certain clinical trials took 35, certain clinical trials took 40 as a cutoff point. And then the HEFREF definition also uh, changed. And more importantly, the mildly reduced or the mid-range EF, which has come into recognition, both from the clinical trials perspective as well as the clinician's perspective, was one of those very um, gray zones where the standardization was not there. So this standardization is for the clinicians to be able to document so that they could state, my guideline-directed therapies are targeting the HEF-REF versus perhaps have that patients. And there is evolving evidence regarding the mild reduced EF, which will be important to see. Why did we tackle the improved EF? That may be an important concept, especially with the subsequent EF being not in the REF category, HEF-REF category, especially related to the devices. Because with the GDMT, there is a possibility for the EF to improve, and people may then recognize that patient may no longer be a candidate for ICD. Why did we work on the terminology of that? There were, a, I think, a variety of different um, uh, investigators working on a concept of recovered EF versus improved EF. We thought in this document we wanted to emphasize the necessity for continued therapies and optimization of therapies, not to give a false presumption of full recovery to the patients, and or to the clinicians, um, with the recognition, with what we know from the TREDHF trial, even if with the treatment, the patient's EF and or symptoms improve or even totally resolve, cessation of therapies will result in worse outcomes and development of heart failure. With that recognition, we didn't want to use the terminology recovered. And thus, we wanted to standardize the terminology as improved when the patient went from HEF-REF to non-HEF-REF category with improvement in EF. And with that, we wanted to clarify what kind of treatment needed to be first initiated and then continued for the patient. So the EF is for the clinicians. Patients always want to know the trajectory, right? They ask us, doctor, has my heart function improved? Yes, we can. That trajectory is important and put it in the context um, as improving or not. And perhaps uh, that's an, also an important discussion point of what we also recommend. We don't recommend, for example, from the terminology to use statements like stable heart failure because stability should not imply not taking any action 
or not optimizing. We have now many more life-saving therapies in heart failure. We don't want people to be complacent. We want them to optimize therapy despite the patient's appearance of staying, let's say, in NYHA class two. That patient still has a high mortality rate. So rather than stable, we recommend persistent heart failure. Rather than recovered in terms of symptoms, we recommend heart failure in remission for symptomatology. And EF categories for the clinicians are in domains of four. That's a fantastic explanation. That really stood out to me, particularly within stage C, this idea of getting rid of this nomenclature of stable heart failure and either, like you said, saying persistent heart failure or heart failure in remission. And I think some of that goes to this idea of these words matter, right? The words that we use when we're describing to our patients really matter. And Andrew, from your perspective, some of these terms in remission, persistent heart failure, what's your thought process behind how we're labeling stage C heart failure? It's a very important point. Uh, And I, I totally support what you say about words matter. We can just be casual and and abbreviate things, and then the message gets changed, not just for patients and their carers, but even for doctors. They can get a sense that, oh, stable, that I don't need to do something. And we've seen time and time again in major registries that treatments are changed during when a patient's in hospital. There's a lot of optimization of therapy. You've got a relatively short time window to make changes. The patient's discharge. And then registry after registry, either side of the Atlantic, have shown that between admissions, maybe up to a year, virtually nothing happens, that we don't uptitrate guideline-directed medical therapy. We don't optimize things in a significant proportion of patients. And the perception must be that that's stable, that the patients come back and I don't need to do anything because they haven't had a hospitalization and it's absolutely critical. The other words like recovered, um, like in remission, all those things, it might be tempting, doctors might be tempted to say that, but the implications can be quite severe. We really have to get that message across to our patients and doctors. Heart failure is a very serious condition, but we have so many effective treatments, more than almost any other branch of medicine, we have multiple therapies, seven or more that reduce combined endpoint of mortality and hospitalization. And therefore, we can, with due attention, very much benefit the life course of the patient. But the counter side of that is that we always have a duty of care. We can never take our eyes off the importance of the heart condition. And therefore, we want this terminology that says we can manage this, we can optimize quality of life, we can optimize duration of life, provided we have continuing attention to managing the condition. We never can assume the disease has gone away, is stable, is in remission anyway. And these terminologies are very important in that message. I I think you make a great point. And I, I think this will have a immediate impact on physicians that actually use these words. And I say that because I was in clinic this morning and I saw someone with heart failure who's doing just fine. And I specifically avoided this word stable heart failure. And I wrote persistent and it did trigger something in myself of saying, okay, if I'm calling this persistent, I should be doing something about this. And it it was a helpful reminder 
as someone who sees heart failure patients pretty regularly. So I think, I think these words are going to have a direct impact on the patients and the physicians as well, taking care of the patients. So I commend you. I commend the whole team on putting those words in there. I, I do have to ask because it always comes up at meetings. Uh, was there ever any discussion about renaming heart failure and some of the connotations that come with, with the name heart failure? Uh, which I know would be a giant undertaking if you did that, but did that ever come up, Deacon? There was a lot of discussion on um, whether we were ready to be able to take the failure out of heart failure and also whether we should also straddle the cardiomyopathy. Then again, the concept of uh, steps going in the right direction with specific objectives is the key. Uh, I think right now we have moved a needle to a standardization that allows um, or gives ammunition to the clinicians to act, act appropriately when and if they see and recognize heart failure and also then optimize therapies to prevent or treat heart failure. Now, back to the question of what, were there discussions of uh, calling it something else? We recognized that heart failure is different than other diseases that um, Andrew has alluded to, such as the CKD and others, where it was a biomarker-driven entity, whereas heart failure is a syndrome. And thus, we recognized we needed to straddle the symptomatology as a syndrome. And thus, we started with first saying, okay, what do we call as heart failure and the syndrome itself? And then we wanted to make it specific and objective Thus, the criteria, as you had seen with the, the biomarkers and the elevated filling pressures were added to make it both specific as well as sensitive enough. Then we wanted to straddle and cover the pre-concept with the stages. So I think we created a formula that allows us to recognize the syndrome, which currently what the, the disease state is, and then embrace the pre and the advanced stages of it as a, as a, a wraparound around the syndrome. Next iterations, of course, may uh, evolve into even the deep phenotyping and the perhaps the ultrastructural changes that we know happen in the heart. In the COVID era, we are very cognizant of what may be happening to the heart. So again, this may be a continuum of a discussion as the things evolve. And as was the case with our universal definition of myocardial infarction, where the the perhaps a spectrum change from a clinical entity to a more of a biomarker-defined entity, heart failure itself may find eventually at the next level of uh, the emphasis on the myocardial and or adaptability of the heart to certain stressors. But currently, we wanted to embrace the syndrome, wrap around it, um, include the pre and the advanced with the stages and then the classifications for the, for the clinicians to be able to target therapies. Andrew, any other thoughts on that issue? Yeah, we did have discussions and we all know the weaknesses of heart failure. It, it does, it can have connotations of there's nothing much that can be done. And we have to remember it's only three or four decades before there were no treatments for heart failure. And it was, um, I'm old enough to have been a medical student when some of my senior taught teachers said, there's no point telling a patient they have heart failure because there's nothing that can be done. And we have changed so much that there, I think it's time will come. I think we will redefine it. But Beacom's right to point out some of the reasons why we are not yet at a stage where we can say there's a new condition of chronic 
chronic heart functional disorder. It may be something like that in the future, but we're not quite there yet. And words do matter, as, as you've said, Kevin, that it's absolutely critical in that regard. And if I may add, Kevin, we also looked at how cancer and the perception about cancer changed, right? So cancer is a deadly disease, but the concept of the precancer and others really changed the paradigm, even though they didn't change the name. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure putting together a team in a document like this, we were talking before we started recording, there must be a giant labor of love to actually put something like this together. And I'm sure the listeners would love to know from both of your perspectives, something you learned about trying to organize a document like this. In other words, working with such a diverse group of people across the world, I presume mostly through digital platforms now, what did you learn in terms of either yourself or the process when you're trying to put together something like this? Uh, Maybe we can start with you, Andrew. Yes, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right to point the technology. In in the previous pre-COVID world, we would have had face-to-face meetings. They would have taken a long time to organize. It would have been expensive. We would get um, very good interaction between people um, and you get those conversations around the water cooler or the cappuccino machine, depending on your preference. So we, we've missed something in that regard, but we have got used to and made friends now around the world through Zoom, where you sit there looking face-to-face for people in Zoom waiting rooms and while talks are coming. And that gives a slightly different type of interaction. So I think now we're, we're seeing the value of blended technologies in terms of absolutely, we're so looking forward to the chance we can get together in a, in a location um, so that we can have that longer interaction. But then supplemented, we can accelerate things by meeting together virtually um, by whatever technology that can bring us together. And that accelerates it. And we would not have got this paper done so quickly had we not had the opportunity for these um, video IT-based interactions. They are absolutely critical. I truly second that. I think um, it truly facilitated our ability to exchange information and come up with a consensus. I'm going to also add the following. I think there are certain critical moments in um, strategic initiatives where the goals of what we're trying to achieve create such an alignment amongst all the warriors who are in the field that creates that harmony and or consensus that it climactically changes the threshold um, and results in change. And recognizing that necessity, recognizing the timing is right, recognizing of why we are discussing this rather than an academic endeavor of what we want to call a certain concept or defining purposes versus why we want to define it so people can appropriately prevent and treat and that we would be able to make a difference and increase the the adherence to guideline-directed therapies created a huge harmony. And thus, I I would say mission-targeted alignment results in a huge, I think, agreement to change, will to change, and results in a rapid, I think, change like these. And uh, despite having uh, representation from 14 different countries and numerous societies and writing groups, it was amazing to see how much of a commonality we had in our approaches, 
initially we were thinking that we were going to have a lot of discordance, but there was more harmony than disagreement. Good. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. I do want to give you both really just a last sort of leaving thoughts for people that are going to be digesting this document. And really, what are your thoughts for the heart failure cardiologist? What are your thoughts for the non-heart failure cardiologists? And what are your thoughts for the patients? What do you hope they take away once they look through this document when it comes to learning about heart failure? And um, Bika, maybe we can start with you. What, what do you hope are the takeaway points for, for people that digest this new information? For the clinicians, regardless whether they're a heart failure specialist or not, including hospitalists, primary care physicians, family medicine doctors, ER doctors, trainees, general cardiologists, and heart failure specialists, first, do not miss and diagnose heart failure. Document and, and diagnose it. Second, prevent and treat appropriately. Uh, now that the definitions and classifications should be clear for all clinicians, optimize, optimize a guideline-directed management and therapies. Third, don't be complacent for stability. Be aware that stable doesn't mean that the journey is done. Realize that this is persistent heart failure. Cancer doctors never stop in optimizing therapies. And rather than using terminologies such as recovered, um, do recognize that your patient may be just temporarily in remission. So continue to close follow-up and optimization. Finally, be aware that we provided the ammunition for you to be able to translate these better to the patients, especially with our stages revision. Partner with your patients in care for them to understand that this is preventable and treatable. Um, inform them of their risk and what we can do to prevent a further progression and decline. From the patient's perspective, we're hoping that our um, tools, deliverables, will be understood by them and thus they could ask the questions to their clinicians of what they can do to better prevent and treat their symptoms. And I think with that, we will be harmonizing care and not have fully academic documents versus uh, patient tools separately. Um, I'd like to, to absolutely agree with all of that. And perhaps I could take a step back and say, from the patient's perspective, something that I am absolutely consistent about in teaching undergraduate medical students is the patient looks at it from their perspective. They don't know which disease they've got until we tell them. And they are an integrated whole, that they're interested in how their conditions interact. And they don't want doctors to get so subspecialized that they only are interested in their disease. So what I call pejoratively gibletologists who are interested only in the heart or the lungs or the kidney. The patient has a habit of being connected and all these organs talk to each other. So the issue for the patient is they want, and I think this document will really improve because it simplifies the understanding of heart failure for the non-heart failure specialist. So they're more likely to say, yes, you do have heart failure and therefore there are all these other treatments that may be beneficial. What it means for the non-heart failure specialist, if we've made heart failure slightly more approachable, so often I've seen people who put their toe in their water and say, well, I think there might be heart failure. And then a local heart failure specialist perhaps um, inappropriately says, no, 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 you've got it completely wrong. This is this is not heart failure, this is something else. And then 
they stop making that decision, there may be heart failure. If we make it more approachable, we'll get more effective diagnosis. But the last point for the heart failure specialists is this is a major step forward, but it's not the end of the story. There are major points, complicated issues, for when there is an element of heart failure complicating other diseases. In the presence of end-stage kidney disease, in the presence of severe lung disease, in the presence even of an acute severe myocardial infarction, when heart failure is present but not the dominant diagnosis, we still have quite a bit of teasing out to do to know how to define that, how to treat it. When is heart failure the dominant feature or when is heart failure a contributing factor and is that short-term or long-term? So I always used to say in my undergraduate lectures, heart failure is the easiest diagnosis to make in the world and sometimes the most complicated. So Beacom, you can't relax. We need you again for the next oh, stage two, whether it be in one, three or five years, because we're on a journey which has had a fantastic start. Um, but we, we need to do our best for all our patients. I, I fully agree, Andrew. And uh, I really appreciate you um, layering as to what we need to do as the tasks um, that are in the, you know, needing to be implemented in the future. One other thing I'm going to mention, uh, Kevin, is other than the clinicians and the patients, this document I think is uh, critical for administrators, uh, healthcare services, legislators, researchers, registry um, developers, and payers, because the implementation phase requires the appropriate documentation coding capture strategies, our performance measures, and so forth will need to be tailored towards these standardized terminologies. And thus, we would hope that um, the community or the stakeholders will not solely entail the clinicians and or the patients, but a larger group of individuals that will help us implement these. Your team really did a fantastic job, I think, addressing all of the stakeholders that have something to care about when it comes to heart failure. Again, everyone listening today, I would encourage you to read this document. It's out now. It's going to be critical to understand how to best help our patients who have heart failure. I do want to thank both of you for joining us today. Everyone taking care of heart failure patients, this is must-read information. It's in the Journal of Cardiac Failure, the European Journal of Heart Failure. Drs. Boskurt, Dr. Coates, we appreciate both of you and your time for having this conversation today. Thank you for listeners for taking time out of your day. For more information on advances and late-breaking news in the field of heart failure care, subscribe to the podcast or visit hfsa.org slash heartfailurebeat to learn all about podcasts created by the Heart Failure Society of America. 